Chapter Nine, Part One of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Nine, Part One. Ivan Turgenev. When the mortal remains of Ivan Turgenev were about to be transported from Paris for interment in his own country, a short commemorative service was held at the Guerre du Nord. Ernest Renan and Edmond Dabout, standing beside the train in which his coffin had been placed, bade farewell in the name of the French people to the illustrious stranger who for so many years had been their honoured and grateful guest. Monsieur Renan made a beautiful speech, and Monsieur About a very clever one, and each of them characterised with ingenuity the genius and the moral nature of the most touching of writers, the most lovable of men. Turgenev, said Monsieur Renan, received by the mysterious decree which marks out human vocations the gift which is noble beyond all others, he was born essentially impersonal. The passage is so eloquent that one must repeat the whole of it, his conscience was not that of an individual to whom nature had been more or less generous. It was in some sort the conscience of a people. Before he was born, he had lived for thousands of years. Infinite successions of reveries had amassed themselves in the depths of his heart. No man has been as much as he the incarnation of a whole race generations of ancestors lost in the sleep of centuries speechless came through him to life and utterance i quote these lines for the pleasure of quoting them for while i see what m renan means by calling turgenev impersonal it has been my wish to devote to his delightful memory a few pages written under the impression of contact and intercourse he seems to us impersonal because it is from his writings almost alone that we of english french and german speech have derived our notions even yet i fear rather meagre and erroneous of the russian people his genius for us is the slav genius his voice, the voice of those vaguely imagined multitudes, whom we think of more and more to-day as waiting their turn in the arena of civilization, in the grey expanses of the North. There is much in his writings to encourage this view, and it is certain that he interpreted with wonderful vividness the temperament of his fellow-countrymen cosmopolite that he had become by the force of circumstances his roots had never been loosened in his native soil the ignorance with regard to russia and the russians which he found in abundance in the rest of europe and not least in the country he inhabited for ten years before his death had indeed the effect to a certain degree to throw him back upon the deep feelings which so many of his companions were unable to share with him the memories of his early years the sense of wide russian horizons the joy and pride of his mother tongue 
in the collection of short pieces so deeply interesting, written during the last few years of his life, and translated into German under the name of Senilia, I find a passage. It is the last in a little book, which illustrates perfectly this reactionary impulse. In days of doubt, in days of anxious thought on the destiny of my native land, thou alone art my support and my staff, O great powerful Russian tongue, truthful and free. If it were not for thee, how should man not despair at the sight of what is going on at home? But it is inconceivable that such a language has not been given to a great people. This Muscovite home-loving note pervades his productions, though it is between the lines, as it were, that we must listen for it. Nonetheless does it remain true that he was not a simple conduit or mouthpiece. The inspiration was his own as well as the voice. He was an individual, in other words, of the most unmistakable kind, and those who had the happiness to know him have no difficulty today in thinking of him as an eminent, responsible figure. This pleasure, for the writer of these lines, was as great as the pleasure of reading the admirable tales into which he put such a world of life and feeling. It was perhaps even greater, for it was not only with the pen that nature had given Turgenev the power to express himself. He was the richest, the most delightful of talkers, and his face, his person, his temper, the thoroughness with which he had been equipped for human intercourse, make in the memory of his friends an image which is completed but not thrown into the shade by his literary distinction the whole image is tinted with sadness partly because the element of melancholy in his nature was deep and constant readers of his novels have no need to be told of that and partly because, during the last years of his life, he had been condemned to suffer atrociously. Intolerable pain had been his portion for too many months before he died. His end was not a soft decline, but a deepening distress. But of brightness, of the faculty of enjoyment, he had also the large allowance usually made to first-rate men and he was a singularly complete human being the author of these pages had greatly admired his writings before having the fortune to make his acquaintance and this privilege when it presented itself was highly illuminating the man and the writer together occupied from that moment a very high place in his affection some time before knowing him, I committed to print certain reflections which his tales had led me to make, and I may perhaps therefore, without impropriety, give them a supplement which shall have a more vivifying reference. It is almost irresistible to attempt to say, from one's own point of view, what manner of man he was." It was in consequence of the article I just mentioned that I found reason to meet him in Paris, where he was then living in 1875. 
I shall never forget the impression he made upon me at that first interview. I found him adorable. I could scarcely believe that he would prove that any man could prove, on nearer acquaintance, so delightful as that. Nearer acquaintance only confirmed my hope, and he remained the most approachable, the most practicable, the least unsafe man of genius it had been my fortune to meet. He was so simple, so natural, so modest, so destitute of personal pretension, and of what is called the consciousness of powers, that one almost doubted at moments whether he were a man of genius after all. Everything good and fruitful lay near to him. He was interested in everything, and he was absolutely without that eagerness of self-reference which sometimes accompanies great and even small reputations. He had not a particle of vanity, nothing whatever of the air of having a part to play or a reputation to keep up. His humor exercised itself as freely upon himself as upon other subjects, and he told stories at his own expense with a sweetness of hilarity which made his peculiarities really sacred in the eyes of a friend. I remember vividly the smile and tone of voice with which he once repeated to me a figurative epithet which Gustave Flaubert, of whom he was extremely fond, had applied to him, an epithet intended to characterize a certain expansive softness, a comprehensive indecision which pervaded his nature, just as it pervades so many of the characters he has painted. He enjoyed Flaubert's use of this term, good-naturedly opprobrious, more even than Flaubert himself, and recognized perfectly the element of truth in it. He was natural to an extraordinary degree. I do not think I have ever seen his match in this respect, certainly not among people who bear, as he did at the same time, the stamp of the highest cultivation. Like all men of a large pattern, he was composed of many different pieces, and what was always striking in him was the mixture of simplicity with the fruit of the most various observation. In the little article in which I had attempted to express my admiration for his works, I had been moved to say of him that he had the aristocratic temperament, a remark which in the light of further knowledge seemed to me singularly inane. He was not subject to any definition of that sort, and to say that he was democratic would be, though his political ideal was a democracy, to give an equally superficial account of him. He felt and understood the opposite sides of life, he was imaginative, speculative, anything but literal. He had not in his mind a grain of prejudice as large as the point of a needle. And people, there are many, who think this a defect, would have missed it immensely in Ivan Sergoyich. I give his name without attempting the Russian orthography, as it was uttered by his friends when they addressed him in French. Our Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, moralistic, conventional standards were far away from him, 
and he judged things with a freedom and spontaneity in which I found a perpetual refreshment. His sense of beauty, his love of truth and right, were the foundation of his nature, but half the charm of conversation with him was that one breathed an air in which cant phrases and arbitrary measurements simply sounded ridiculous. I may add that it was not because I had written a laudatory article about his books that he gave me a friendly welcome, for in the first place my article could have very little importance for him, and in the second it had never been either his habit or his hope to bask in the light of criticism. Supremely modest as he was, I think he attached no great weight to what might happen to be said about him, for he felt that he was destined to encounter a very small amount of intelligent appreciation, especially in foreign countries. I never heard him even allude to any judgment which might have been passed upon his productions in England. In France he knew that he was read very moderately. The demand for his volumes was small, and he had no allusions whatever on the subject of his popularity. He had heard with pleasure that many intelligent persons in the United States were impatient for everything that might come from his pen. But I think he was never convinced, as one or two of the more zealous of these persons had endeavored to convince him that he could boast of a public in America. He gave me the impression of thinking of criticism as most serious workers think of it, that it is the amusement, the exercise, the subsistence of the critic, and, so far as this goes, of immense use, but that though it may often concern other readers, it does not much concern the artist himself. In comparison with all those things which the production of a considered work forces the artist little by little to say to himself, the remarks of the critic are vague and of the moment, and yet, owing to the large publicity of the proceeding, they have a power to irritate or discourage which is quite out of proportion to their use to the person criticized. It was not, moreover, if this explanation be not more gross than the spectre it is meant to conjure away, on account of any esteem which he accorded to my own productions, I used regularly to send them to him, that I found him so agreeable, for to the best of my belief he was unable to read them. As regards one of the first that I had offered him, he wrote me a little note to tell me that a distinguished friend, who was his constant companion, had read three or four chapters aloud to him the evening before, and that one of them was written, Demain de Maître. This gave me great pleasure, but it was my first and last pleasure of the kind. I continued, as I say, to send him my fictions, because they were the only thing I had to give. But he never alluded to the rest of the work in question, which he evidently did not finish, and never gave any sign of having read its successors. Presently I quite ceased to expect this, and saw why it was, it interested me much, that my writings could not appeal to him. 
he cared more than anything else for the air of reality and my reality was not to the purpose i do not think my stories struck him as quite meet for men the manner was more apparent than the matter they were too tarabiscote as i once heard him say of the style of a book had on the surface too many little flowers and knots of ribbon he had read a great deal of english and knew the language remarkably well too well i used often to think for he liked to speak it with those to whom it was native and successful as the effort always was it deprived him of the facility and raciness with which he expressed himself in french i have said that he had no prejudices but perhaps after all he had one i think he imagined it to be impossible to a person of english speech to converse in french with complete correctness he knew shakespeare thoroughly and at one time had wandered far and wide in english literature his opportunities for speaking english were not at all frequent so that when the necessity or at least the occasion presented itself he remembered the phrases he had encountered in books this often gave a charming quaintness and an unexpected literary turn to what he said in russia in spring if you enter a beechen grove those words come back to me from the last time i saw him he continued to read english books and was not incapable of attacking the usual tochnitz novel the english writer of our day of whom i remember to have heard him speak with most admiration was dickens of whose faults he was conscious but whose power of presenting to the eye a vivid salient figure he rated very high in the young french school he was much interested i mean in the new votaries of realism the grandsons of balzac he was a good friend of most of them and with gustave flaubert the most singular and most original of the group he was altogether intimate he had his reservations and discriminations and he had above all the great back garden of his slav imagination and his germanic culture into which the door constantly stood open and the grandsons of balzac were not i think particularly free to accompany him but he had much sympathy with their experiment their general movement and it was on the side of the careful study of life as the best line of the novelist that as may easily be supposed he ranged himself for some of the manifestations of the opposite tradition he had a great contempt this was a kind of emotion he rarely expressed save in regard to certain public wrongs and iniquities bitterness and denunciation seldom passed his mild lips but i remember well the little flush of conviction the seriousness with which he once said in allusion to a novel which had just been running through the revue des deux mondes if i had written anything so bad as that i should blush for it all my life his was not i should say predominantly or even in a high degree the artistic nature though it was deeply if i may make the distinction the poetic 
but during the last twelve years of his life he lived much with artists and men of letters and he was eminently capable of kindling in the glow of discussion he cared for questions of form though not in the degree in which flaubert and edmond de jeancourt cared for them and he had very lively sympathies he had a great regard for madame georges sand the head and front of the old romantic tradition but this was on general grounds quite independent of her novels which he never read and which she never expected him or apparently any one else to read he thought her character remarkably noble and sincere he had as i have said a great affection for gustave flaubert who returned it and he was much interested in flaubert's extraordinary attempts at bravery of form and of matter knowing perfectly well when they failed during those months which it was flaubert's habit to spend in paris turgenieff went almost regularly to see him on sunday afternoon and was so good as to introduce me to the author of madame bovary in whom i saw many reasons for turgenieff's regard it was on these sundays in flaubert's little salon which at the top of a house at the end of the faubourg st honore looked rather bare and provisional that in the company of the other familiars of the spot more than one of whom have commemorated these occasions turgenieff's beautiful faculty of talk showed at its best he was easy natural abundant more than i can describe and everything that he said was touched with the exquisite quality of his imagination what was discussed in that little smoke-clouded room was chiefly questions of taste questions of art and form and the speakers for the most part were in aesthetic matters radicals of the deepest dye it would have been late in the day to propose among them any discussion of the relation of art to morality any question as to the degree in which a novel might or might not concern itself with the teaching of a lesson they had settled these preliminaries long ago and it would have been primitive and incongruous to recur to them the conviction that held them together was the conviction that art and morality are two perfectly different things and that the former has no more to do with the latter than it has with astronomy or embryology the only duty of a novel was to be well written that merit included every other of which it was capable this state of mind was never more apparent than one afternoon when say monsieur delivered themselves on the subject of an incident which had just befallen one of them la sommoire of emile zola had been discontinued in the journal through which it was running as a serial in consequence of repeated protests from the subscribers the subscriber as a type of human imbecility received a wonderful dressing and the philistine in general was roughly handled there were gulfs of difference between turgenieff and zola but turgenieff who as i say understood everything understood zola too and rendered perfect justice to the high solidity of much of his work 
his attitude at such times was admirable and i could imagine nothing more genial or more fitted to give an idea of light easy human intelligence no one could desire more than he that art should be art always ever incorruptibly art to him this proposition would have seemed as little in need of proof or susceptible of refutation as the axiom that law should always be law or medicine always medicine as much as any one he was prepared to take note of the fact that the demand for abdications and concessions never comes from artists themselves but always from purchasers editors subscribers i am pretty sure that his word about all this would have been that he could not quite see what was meant by the talk about novels being moral or the reverse that a novel could no more propose to itself to be moral than a painting or a symphony and that it was arbitrary to lay down a distinction between the numerous forms of art he was the last man to be blind to their unity i suspect that he would have said in short that distinctions were demanded in the interest of the moralists and that the demand was indelicate owing to their want of jurisdiction yet at the same time that i make this suggestion as to his state of mind i remember how little he struck me as bound by mere neatness of formula how little there was in him of the partisan or the pleader what he thought of the relation of art to life his stories after all show better than anything else the immense variety of life was ever present to his mind and he would never have argued the question i have just hinted at in the interest of particular liberties the liberties that were apparently the dearest to his french confrere it was this air that he carried about with him of feeling all the variety of life of knowing strange and far-off things of having an horizon in which the parisian horizon so familiar so wanting in mystery so perpetually exploité easily lost itself that distinguished him from these companions he was not all there as the phrase is he had something behind in reserve it was russia of course in a large measure and especially before the spectacle of what is going on there to-day that was a large quantity but so far as he was on the spot he was an element of pure sociability i did not intend to go into these details immediately for i had only begun to say what an impression of magnificent manhood he made upon me when i first knew him that impression indeed always remained with me even after it had been brought home to me how much there was in him of the quality of genius he was a beautiful intellect of course but above all he was a delightful mild masculine figure the combination of his deep, soft, lovable spirit, in which one felt all the tender parts of genius, with his immense, fair Russian physique, was one of the most attractive things conceivable. He had a frame which would have made it perfectly lawful and even becoming for him to be brutal, but there was not a grain of brutality in his composition. 
he had always been a passionate sportsman to wander in the woods or the steppes with his dog and gun was the pleasure of his heart late in life he continued to shoot and he had a friend in cambridgeshire for the sake of whose partridges which were famous he used sometimes to cross the channel it would have been impossible to imagine a better representation of a nimrod of the north he was exceedingly tall and broad and robust in proportion his head was one of the finest and though the line of his features was irregular there was a great deal of beauty in his face it was eminently of the russian type almost everything in it was wide his expression had a singular sweetness with a touch of slav languor and his eye the kindest of eyes was deep and melancholy his hair abundant and straight was as white as silver and his beard which he wore trimmed rather short was of the colour of his hair in all his tall person which was very striking wherever it appeared there was an air of neglected strength as if it had been a part of his modesty never to remind himself that he was strong he used sometimes to blush like a boy of sixteen he had very few forms and ceremonies and almost as little manner as was possible to a man of his natural pretense his noble appearance was in itself a manner but whatever he did he did very simply and he had not the slightest pretension to not being subject to rectification i never saw any one receive it with less irritation friendly candid unaffectedly benignant the impression that he produced most strongly and most generally was i think simply that of goodness End of chapter 9, part 1, Ivan Turgenev.